0: Hello and welcome to the whole in my heart podcast. This is episode 65 exploring our souls of shame part two.
1: part two. we are on part two of this and I'm so excited to get diving back in that's probably not proper grammar but whatever (laughs) I'm excited to dive back in. Uh, But my name is Lori Krieg, and I am the executive director of Holt In My Heart Ministries, and we're coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm here again with licensed therapist and Argyle expert. I didn't do as much of the, like, come on down, but whatever. Uh, As we did last time, (laughs) licensed therapist and Argyle expert, and today, plaid again, uh, my husband, Matt. Hello. (laughs) Hello. And we also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve.
0: One of these times, just I'm just going to crack just the voice. Just do it. cracky. Oh, okay. Hello.
1: <laughs> you see, There's guys? your <laughs>
0: professional radio voice for you.
1: <laughs> uh, well, welcome to part two of a series we began last week with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a board-certified psychiatrist, the founder of the Center for Being Known, and author of Anatomy of the Soul, and our focus book today and of last week, The Soul of
2: Shame. Welcome back, Kurt. Thanks so much. Great to be back with you.
1: Yeah. We are excited to have you back and... I'm not going to lie. We are recording back to back. (laughs) Speaking of back, uh, so that he can continue on with his life and write more amazing books and lead people toward healing. Um, So we, when we do the question of the week, um, we are not going to hear from you, listeners. Even though I hope that in these weeks between when these got posted, that we did hear from you because we do really appreciate that. Um, We are also going to skip Goofball Island today uh, and really just dive back into the content. So just wipe those tears and I don't know, watch some funny cat playing a piano video or something if you need to laugh, but um, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, But we are going to do the question of the week from last week or really in the last hour when we recorded this. Um, And it's just going to be among us. But what was something from the last episode that stood out to you guys?
0: Uh, I just really appreciate the automobile metaphor. Yeah. Uh, Just that you know we're kind of all on this accelerator default but the you know no that comes into all of our lives is the brakes yeah and that clutch that clutch is kind of like the love that keeps the engine running yeah so that was <laughs> great the other thing just this idea just kind of changed my paradigm um about confession <laughs> like i've had this mindset that confession is somehow like the medicine I have to take to cleanse me of the sin Mm -hmm. or something like that. But like, no, the goal is to have just an honest relationship with someone who loves you. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. confession is how we get there. Just living honestly Mm -hmm. before each other. I mean, those are my words. Uh, Dr. Thompson's were m- much better, but that was kind of what <laughs> I, I took from the it. the summary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Love well, that.
3: Yeah. And I think that second part with the confession, because that's been like rolling around in my head mm. for a while, probably since I read Kurt's book, but but just the idea that it's like an exchange of, of truth, yeah. where it's like not just the act or the, the sin that was committed, but the truth of like, this is my life, mm. you know, and, and the way mm. that we can respond without even our words being, Used to reinforce the truth of how how much of a beloved creation this yeah. the, the person is.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think mm-hmm. just piggybacking yeah. on that, just. I liked the the real life application. I just feel like there were some light bulb moments throughout it, but just even within my own story, just things I've said from a stage, like how I've you know quoted Ephesians three about how love empowers us to die essentially to ourselves, and so I'm like, oh, it's just true. And even like neurobiologically, how this like relational love relationship with God is what really it's not the white knuckling it, which is what you said, Kurt, but it's really just okay. I have this relationship, yes, with people but, like, too, with God that I know empowered and empowers me to die to the things that I want.
4: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, thank you for that. Any highlights from your own words? Kurt, just kidding. <laughs> well, <no. laughs>
4: The whole,
3: thing.
1: The, yeah, the whole thing. All dynamite, yeah.
3: Well, I, I think, you know, Kurt already said his highlight was listening to Steve's yeah, just immaculate voice. <laughs> so, Steve, if you wow. could somehow read the transcript... Of what Kurt was saying in your own voice, it He's would sorry. just be so so impeccable. Are you, oh. are
1: you gonna do the audiobook of the podcast of this? I don't know, anyway. All right, see, we said no goofball island, mm. JK. Y'all we can't do it, yeah. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, let's dive into the heart of the matter, and we're not going to ask you the question we ask every single guest, because we already asked it last time, but let's... um, You already alluded to this in the last episode, but I'd love to just unpack it a little bit further because I know when Matt was reading your book he had it first and then he started explaining some of this whole how shame revealed itself in creation to me and I was like what give me the book um, which I didn't just do that I I held the clutch the <laughs> relationship and I waited till he was done um, but let's if we take shame like where does it first show up in creation and, and how do we see God just so beautifully? I guess remove it or like start to, to mm-hmm. exemplify mm-hmm. its removal possibility. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think as we talked about in the last episode, uh, again, remembering that the hallmark and, and in the book, I, we, we talk about a number of different features of shame. And one of those features, uh, that happens when the clutch is not applied, when the brake is applied, uh, as Steve mentioned, um, Is this sense of isolation that takes place, right? Mm -hmm. There's this disconnection relationally. And so this hallmark of shame that is around the notion of an isolating effect uh, relationally, what it tends to, and which is what happens when we say no to someone, but not do so in a way that, where in which we can remain connected to them, literally looking at them in the eye, being present to them, so forth and so on. Whether it's our child or whether it's our friend in a conversation or an employee, uh, in, in in you know in a in an employment situation, whatever that is,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, I think that one of the things that we notice, you know, we we ask, well, why why does the writer of the Genesis text go out of their way to describe that the first couple at the end of Genesis two is Naked and unashamed. There are lots of other words that the Hebrews could have used to describe their state. They could have been naked and unafraid, naked and confident, naked in a whole range of things. And of course, uh, you know, reading it as literature, we could say, well, it's setting us up for the next um, you know for for the next chapter, which is true. But I think, you know, one of the things that that we notice about shame, as we said earlier, is that it shows up developmentally in human beings very early in our life, long before we have language, long before our brain has the capacity to make sense of what it is sensing. So we're already having to learn how to regulate shame without having the um, benefit of cognition, without having the benefit of somebody being able to say to you, well, Kurt, the reason that you felt shame actually is not because you're such a dud, but because this person did this thing to you. And that's why you're feeling it. it's not about you. It really is about this thing that happened to you. <laughs> that is that, that requires in order for that to happen. It requires in order, in order for me to be protected against shame, it requires the presence, the activation of the clutch, the presence of a relationship. One of the first things that we see then is that developmentally in humans, it can occur early, and we see that happening early in the creation narrative. Hmm. So the writer sets us up at the end of Genesis chapter 2, and the first thing that you see in Genesis chapter 3 is you. Know, we're all familiar with the conversation, brief as it appears to be in that text, we're all familiar with it, but because the writer is such a good writer, we we don't necessarily we may or may not recognize immediately that the serpent uh, begins a conversation with the woman. And one wonders, if you're really wanting to tell the whole truth to somebody, one would think that you want to include the whole audience. But the serpent is first going to disconnect the woman from the man. Hmm. There's an isolating conversation that's taking place. It's not a conversation that takes place with the woman and the man together and heaven forbid that the serpent would say to the woman, if you really want to find this out, let's bring God into this conversation as well. We'll wait till he walks around again at the cool of the day. Hmm. And when he gets here, we'll have this conversation. Just uh, all the four of us will talk.
4: Hmm.
2: That's not what happens. There is this isolating with intention. There is this sense that the biblical narrative seems to indicate that evil has an intention to devour us, as Lewis would write about in the screw tape letters. Mm -hmm. It has an intention to do so by, first of all, literally disconnecting us from one another, isolating Mm -hmm. us. And in that process, shame is strengthened. And that begins very, very early. And it moves from the first couple, despite God's attempt to reconnect by asking the question, where are you? Uh, it extends then even into their progeny when Cain kills Abel in a fit of disconnection, because there is that disconnection that you read about. We don't know why God looked favorably upon Abel's offering, but not upon Cain's, but we do sense this sense of disconnection between Cain and God. And the way that he responds to this is by trying to destroy or cope with it by getting rid of what he considers to be the provoking element, which is his brother. And this is what shame will do to us, right? We will, eventually, we revert to all kinds of acts of violence, which in many respects is how sexual addiction is, you know, pornography is as much an act of violence as it is anything else. And um, Hmm. so now I'm being long-winded about all this, but (laughs) in any event.
1: It's helpful. Yeah. So that's where we see it we see him isolate eve and he starts to lie to her and i thought that it was pretty interesting just how you um how you describe in the book just the how, just how sneaky gross his lies were and how shame laden they were and so i'm just quoting you. like You're quoting Satan, which I guess, whatever. But essentially, it's like, God does not want you to be like him, which is what Satan is essentially saying. God does not want you to have what he has. He does not want you to be as close and as connected to him as you might think he does. And by further implication, therefore, you are not as important as you think. You, as it turns out, are less than you think. You are not enough. And to just for that translation, similar to screw tape letters, you know, just try and get in the mind of Satan or the demonic, which whatever, mm-hmm. take it or leave it. But I was like, that oh. is so interesting. Just like, oh, you're going to be like God, you know, that that's he, whatever he's saying. But to just essentially that means you, Eve, you're not enough, which is essentially the definition of shame. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Is there anything more on that just as far as like... I don't the
4: sneakiness well, yeah. of shame. Well,
2: exactly. Well, I'll just give I'll give it an example. I, I have I, I have had a had a patient who, when she was nineteen, and in college, her father came to her, called her, and said, "I'm leaving your mother, and uh, your two younger sisters, and I'm moving to Seattle where I have another family." Wow. But don't worry, it's not your fault. <laughs> Now, the thing is, of course, if you had described this this person, when I was seeing as a patient, I was seeing them several decades later. Mm -hmm. But the point being that, um, you know, who does that to their child? Right. So there is this sense, right, in which she had a relationship with her dad in which she really believed very deeply that she was the apple of his eye. They Mm -hmm. had a great relationship as far Mm -hmm. as she could have, as far as she knew at that point. But when dad left, and then, of course, when he said, it's not your fault, um, you know, to her reasoning, look, if you're if you can choose to move to the West Coast, uh, you can say it's not my fault. But what is it about me that's not enough
4: Mm.
2: such that you're leaving me for somebody else?
4: Mm.
2: You see, and and that's what I would say, like what the writers of Genesis are so brilliant, this sense that they don't give us all the explanation and detail of everything that's going on. They don't have to because they're just showing us what happens when Eve hears this, just yeah. like we all do, right? We hear things like, well, God knows that in the day that you eat a thereof, you know, you'll become like him. The implication being like I then, he, the, Satan, look, I tell people, look, evil is the second smartest person on the planet.
4: Hmm and evil
2: lets us draw our own conclusions evil lets us tell stories and especially in isolation see this is mm-hmm. part of the point the conclusions that she's going to draw in the felt sense of shame yeah which is being activated she doesn't when when we are feeling ashamed it's difficult for us to go to someone else and say hey i need to check something out with you hmm. is is this way that i'm understanding the story True, or Mm -hmm. because the going to someone else in and of itself is already strengthening the felt sense of shame, which is why I stay away from going to people. (laughs) And so I become the one who tells the story as I understand it by myself, with no input from anybody else. Right. Only continually retreating further and further into the corner of darkness I'm painting myself into. Yep. Yep. And. This is then why it's so difficult for me eventually to reach out and say to someone else, could you help me? Hmm. Because it's so emotionally nauseating to do that.
4: Hmm.
2: And uh, again, because we begin this practice so early in our developmental years, you know, by the time we're, you know, certainly by the time we're teenagers, we're already really, really good at it.
1: Yeah, right. This whole isolation that began in the garden, I think it's such an important point that you make, too, just as you continue to describe this story in your book, just like that she doesn't go to God. You know, so shame has already got this grip on her. She's starting to believe these lies and let this wet blanket just cover her, that she's not mm-hmm. enough. And so instead of going to God, like you said, like Satan didn't say, let's let's talk, everybody, all the four of us. She mm-hmm. just judges him from a distance rather than being like, God, what do you think about this and inviting him in? Um, which is what? which is what we do. But then, and this is just dawning on me now, based on some of our last week conversation um, to now, is that really the creation story is this beautiful like micro gospel because then Mm. who comes pursuing them in Mm. their hot Mm. mess?
4: Mm. But it's God.
1: So can Mm. you talk a little bit, and we alluded to this last week, but just this like how he he asks these beautiful questions, and he sees them. And just what is the power of being seen in our total depravity?
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, you know, one of the most um, compelling and gripping statements in a lot of the Bible, certainly perhaps in the Old Testament for me, is when we read Hagar in the desert after she has left, and God, the angel of God comes to her. And speaks truth into and over her life. Mm. And she says, behold, the God who sees me.
4: Yeah. Oh,
2: Roy. And I think about that. And I think about how uh, we all long to be seen. Mm. I want nothing. There's nothing I want more than to be seen by the one by whom I most deeply want to be seen. Yeah, that's what I long for. And I long for that one to be just as joy filled. And I want for that one to want as much to be seen by me. Yeah, there's now, you know, in when we when we talk about sex, for instance, Hmm. um, that really is the essence of sex, the essence of sex as it boils down to it. Like the end point of sex is not intercourse. The end point of sex is actually beyond intercourse, which is something our imaginations are woefully underdeveloped in Mm -hmm. considering. Mm -hmm. Because when I've had sex, when I've had intercourse, when I've accessed orgasm, it's done. Right. And, you know, like if it's going to happen again and you're going to have to wait 30 minutes, like you, you know, you, you, I mean, just to be blunt, yeah, right? like yeah. you, you, like, you, you cannot continually maintain a state of orgasmia in your mind. You can't continually do that. Even the cocaine that you want to use runs out
4: hmm.
2: because that's not, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for, what I want when I anticipate even sex, what I'm I'm anticipating is this felt sense of being seen, of being known, of being pursued, of being wanted. I want you to want me even, even those parts of me that I hate the most. Wow. And I want to know that in the moment that I see you seeing me, even in my most hated parts, that you won't leave the room And that if we do have to leave the room, that I can carry this with me. I can carry this sense with me that even when I leave the room, I have you and your wanting me, your desiring to be with me in my mind. Mm. And that in that experience, we will not be exploiting one another. We will not be devouring one another. I will not be using you. I will not be uh, hoarding you. The part about life in our world that is so difficult, and, and, and believe me, I am the chief among sinners when it comes to this, is that as much as I know that all of that is true, when it comes right down to it, there is the part of me that does want to hoard, to consume, to right. devour, to right. clutch. Hmm. And the reason I do is because I'm so, but Shane is still talking to me, hmm. telling me that like, you know what, Kurt? At some point, she or he or they are going to find that one part of you and they're going to see it and they're going to go. And so I am afraid of losing you. It's Mm. hard for, because there is, we, we talk about memory. We talk about our memory networks, our neural, the neural networks of memory and the role that they play. It's difficult for me to anticipate a future In which I no longer have any part of me that no longer worries that you'll leave. Hmm. It's hard for me to do that. God's pursuit in Genesis. It's not just what he tells the first couple, right? right? That, you know, the serpent will strike your heel, but you will crush its head. That's all true. But it's not just what he tells them. It's that he's telling them this in person. Hmm. He has come to find them. He comes to put clothing on them, yeah. right? He clothes them. He, the, which is of course, you know, the harbinger of being clothed in Christ. Hmm. This notion that God is not just, you know, speaking from a distant world, having somebody else come and put clothes on them. He personally is going to come and do this for and with them, despite despite their resistance Hmm. and this is the hard thing for us i think as human beings as as, you know look as parents how many of us were taking care of children and children you know like my kids are 28 and 25 and there's, st- there's still things that I wish that I could be in charge of their life about, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you think you're, you have a two and a four year old, you like, yeah. you think you'll be done when you send them away? No. Uh-oh. Oh no. no. And I, and I, and, and, these, these parts of me that want to control and want to be in charge and so forth and so on, even mm-hmm. with my adult kids and thinking like, you know, that's the one thing God, even in, even in his pursuit of us is not going to use shame as part of it. Hmm. Which is part of, it would seem, why it takes so long, because he's not going to twist my arm. Right. He's not going to shame me in the process of me not having my shame cleaned up well enough. He is going to continue to relentlessly pursue me mm. using that clutch and not allowing shame to be part of the conversation, which is how, I mean, excuse, what he was doing, it would appear, from the very first pages of Genesis.
1: Yeah. Wow. 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 Okay. But Kurt, this is hard. This is hard to live it out. This is hard to, you know, there's times I've actually even prayed. I've asked God, will you crack open the hole in my heart more so that I almost will let you see me and let you in to pursue me? Because there is, you know, as Ann Voskamp will say, like there's just a certain vulnerability and, um, there's a there's a sacrifice in in being vulnerable and to be loved.
4: Mm-hmm. So how
1: how mm-hmm. do we do that both with God but then too, Kurt? People are humans and mm-hmm. they are not yeah. God. It's,
2: it's such a, it's such a shame. <laughs> it's such a
1: shame that people. The world are would humans. be so
2: much better. If it's it was true.
1: Right. But like to to create you know these safe these havens of vulnerability like so how how do we both this is a gigantic question like allow god to pursue and love us in our hot mess and then both allow others to as we also pursue them in their mess
2: mm-hmm. yeah you know i um it, it's a, it's a great question and i um i don't i don't know what your take on the book, The Shack is, but oh, I I've, I've found that go book, to, to Go uh, to
1: town. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. And, and, <laughs>
2: and it's, and it's author to be, I've, I've had the chance to have conversation with him and it's mm. been really, really delightful. And, um, you know, in, in the book, uh, there's one line where, um, you know, this, this whole notion they're they're having, they're having dinner around the table, Mac and the three the holy threesome are having mm-hmm. their dinner around the table. And Max says to God, well, don't you ever get disappointed with us? Hmm. Aren't you ever disappointed? And God responds by saying, well, no, I don't. And Max, how could you not? And God says, well, because I never run out of options.
4: Hmm.
2: Hmm. But I want to, I, I heard that. I think like, oh, that, that just makes sense, right? Because God's kind of infinitely able to do what God always does and then i thought to myself is it possible is it not possible that the option like i think about option as like a thing god does like there's god and then there's the thing he does that is the option yeah yeah and i'm thinking like that it it may i don't know that that's really the way it works it's more like like god and his very presence is the option Hmm. the option is he will not leave the room Mm. Yeah, Mm. it is this sense in which so as Ann Voskamp rightly says, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability to open oneself up. And we think that it's just about like I'm I feel vulnerable and I'm afraid to like I'm I'm afraid of being in God's presence. The thing is this. I'm really afraid to be in my presence. I'm afraid to be Mm -hmm. like to look at the part of me And then have God see me as I see me. Right. It's not just I'm afraid of God seeing me. Like I'm afraid of me seeing me Mm -hmm. in his presence. And I'm sure that when I look up again from the thing about me that I hate so much, like he will have left the room. Right. Mm -hmm. And shockingly, (laughs) he does not. Mm -hmm. And so we have this experience in which we share some of ourselves and we discover that God remains. And that and and we discover like, oh, my gosh, like I can be relieved of the shame that I felt from that particular part of my story. And that gives me greater willingness to then open up a little bit more. But the very act of the next step sometimes, oddly enough, feels just as difficult as the last step that I opened up, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that, you know, I think I'm supposed to be doing this better and better. Right, right. With each step, I think we come to find, again, back to this question of just how bad things really are, we come to find that things are far worse than we've imagined, mm-hmm. but we only discover that as the process of responding to the love that we couldn't believe in the first place.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: As we do this, uh, we find that um, my experience of being seen, of being received, in a practiced way is really what makes all the difference. Um, one of the things that we are, are doing in our practice and that is gonna fuel, uh, it's, that's fueling a lot of the content of my next book project mm. um, is that we are increasingly running more and more groups. Mm. And what we're finding in the groups is that when one person shares their story uh, you know, if you, if you share a story, if a patient shares a story in the context of, uh, of, of meeting with a single psychotherapist, psychiatrist, whatever, mm-hmm. a single person, um, their, their story is heard by one person and that can be really helpful and effective. When that same story is shared in a room full of 10 other people, all of whom are intent upon being vulnerable.
4: Hmm.
2: being open, being receptive, being confident, being safe, being confidential, but also being willing to set limits, what we find is that my brain now is literally, if I'm going to tell my story, I'm going to evoke a range of different emotional states in a lot of these different folks. And as they reflect back to me, their sense of compassion, their sense of empathy, their sense of curiosity and so forth and so on. I literally in a in an embodied neurobiological fashion, I literally experience the welcoming of eight other human beings who are simultaneously saying to me, "Kurt, we want you in this room even with all this brokenness that you are telling me about." Huh. And the the point is that the experience that i have in a community of people has neurobiological implications that would be different if it's just one person that i'm speaking to
1: right mm-hmm.
2: and we're and so all, all that to say is that this notion of paul's language of do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit that the holy spirit does all kinds of work In the context of a gathered community that is by no accident deeply related to our interpersonal neurobiology. It is the way we've been made. You know, Jesus could have said at the ascension, he could have said to everybody in Acts chapter one, hey, y'all go back to your own individual homes Hmm. and go to your and go to your prayer closets. Yeah. And y'all just you just just pray and wait and something magical will happen at some point. No. No they all gathered in one room continually. Mm. And I want to suggest that where Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, there I will be also. And when he's there also, he's not just like like sitting in the room in a chair just watching everybody else do things. He's coming and doing things, but doing things by virtue of how we have been made to operate, doing things because of how we have been neurobiologically and interpersonally made from the beginning to operate. And so our shame finds a way to be healed because I bear testimony to the number of people who have come back to the group the next week and who said, what got me through this week was the memory of you three people telling me the things that you told me.
4: Hmm.
2: And And when we say memory in that sense, I don't mean, oh, they're recalling a set of facts that those people It's not the transfer of information. It is the felt, remembered, embodied sense of being in the room, being held, being felt, being wanted, being seen, even as we were afraid to tell them the truth about who we are, that literally transforms our neural networks creating new imagery, creating new possibility, creating new capacity for imagining that I can now do things that heretofore I couldn't have imagined doing because I was too busy managing all of the literal neurobiological energy that shame was consuming within me.
0: Wow.
3: Okay. So you're, you're talking about kind of this shift that you guys have going on at, at your, um, your organization that, that you're utilizing more and more of these groups. And it sounds like for, for obviously beneficial reasons, but in that same stance, when, when people can be beneficial, there's also the sense that people can react poorly as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess, how do we, how do we in our own communities and in our own conversations, make sure that we are responding properly to, to these places when people are being vulnerable, how do we create these communities where vulnerability is, acceptable and tended to well.
2: Right. Um, I uh, also, so one thing is that um, just, just a backdrop. First of all, um, it's a great question and uh, there, there isn't an easy answer to this. Mm -hmm. There is a straightforward answer to this. As we say, like life is actually very, very simple (laughs) and extraordinarily excruciatingly difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's not difficult because it's complicated. It's difficult because the work of pushing against who we are is like pushing against the earth. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: I tell people, look, uh, if you want to bench press 50 pounds, it's not that tough to do. If you want to bench press 300 pounds, it's actually no more complicated than bench pressing 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. The motion (laughs) motion is the same. Right. Right. But it's not easy, but it's not difficult because it's complicated. It's difficult because it's 300 pounds. And in this same way, we would say, first of all, um, every community that embarks to tell their stories in these ways, every community is going to need leaders, people who are uh, able and ready to do the kind of work that. The leaders in our groups do now in this way I'm not suggesting that you have to have a professional degree and you're a trained psychotherapist part of what we're trying to do in our organization is to develop immersion training uh, you know to we're, we're in our uh, we're, we're trying to figure out how our little nonprofit can develop immersion training uh, experiences for people to come and be trained in this material
4: right mm-hmm.
2: because um, we really believe that this kind of work creates the space for outposts of goodness and beauty to be able to spring up in the context of church, in the context actually of any vocational domain. You can talk about this in your business. You can talk about this in your school. You can talk about this in a range of different settings. But each setting is going to need, first of all, leaders. And, the, and and by leaders, we mean people who have actually kind of done some of this work. So clearly, uh, we're having a conversation here. You, you are people who are not just talking about something, you're people mm-hmm. who are doing something about that which you're talking.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And so it requires doing some, and, and not, not just reading the stuff that I've written, it's, mm-hmm. it's doing work in a range of different ways in which we really want to um, practice being in these groups. So first of all, it really does require being in a community where somebody or a couple of people are the trusted leaders, the trusted people who are going to help hold that group in a fashion that is worthy. Yeah. That's number one. Number yeah. two, um, in our groups, we have to get people to a point where they're actually ready to be in them. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is now. I, I, you know, it's like we, you know, we live in a world where everybody gets a trophy, yeah. uh, where nobody wants anybody to be better than anybody else. Nobody wants anybody to have any special privilege. You know, and I'm one of those guys, right? Because, like, if I was one of the twelve disciples. <laughs> I, I like, I would have had to have been the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, right. <laughs> be, like, I, like, I don't want, like, nobody else gets to have that space.
3: Sorry, John.
4: And, yeah. Right,
2: exactly. Like, if I don't get that space, like, I'm not, like, either, like, nobody gets it, or I'm not going to be part of the group. <laughs> and, which would be hard for me, because, like, I'd probably end up being, like, Bartholomew. Like, yeah, he gets right. mentioned once, Nothing. right? In the book of Matthew. And, like, who, who knows what happened to Bartholomew? Nobody. Like, who knows? Nobody. But the point is that, like, Jesus actually did pay a certain kind of attention to certain disciples that was not paid to others.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Peter, James, John. and then John, at least we think, the disciple whom we loved, they had particular experiences with him that it would appear from the Gospels, others did not have. This is not I, I, this is not to suggest that some were liked better than others, some were more important than others. but it is to say, that some people were ready to hear things and other people perhaps weren't quite as ready to hear things. Hmm. I'm like, who knows? It might've been Peter, James, and John that like, they were actually three of the 12 who were ready to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe he would have taken more if more had been ready. Right. I don't know. The point being that um, in these groups, it is gonna, we, we have to be able to know that to be in the group, You have to be able to self-regulate in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. So we can all think about situations in which um, you can talk to a person one-on-one in such a way that is effective, but if you put them in a group, they can't manage, they can't regulate their own emotional state, and their presence in the group disrupts the entire group. Mm -hmm. We know that those folks are in the world, and it means that for them, they may not be able to be in that group until they're trained individually enough to be ready to do that. Right. Now, you know, you can find ways in a professional setting, in a psychotherapy setting, to, to do this, but I think that there are, um, relatively speaking, uncomplicated ways to transfer this kind of work into our faith communities. It's not mm-hmm. hard to do. When, when I, I'm sorry, it's, it's not complicated to do. It <laughs> is hard to do because shame wants to insert itself in every possible conversation that we're going to have where any kind of discernment process is in play, where we're saying to someone, you are or you are not ready for a particular kind of experience. Hmm. That felt that felt sense of judgment is going to be in play. And part of what it means to be people of wisdom and people of leadership includes our capacity to Be able to make proper discernment processes, proper discerning judgments without allowing shame to be part of that process. I realize I may have gone off the grid here a bit more than you wanted to, but
1: I think it was really helpful because we do, I facilitate groups, and I was in a conversation today with someone who was like, oh, we'll just put XYZ people in counseling or whatever. And I was like, no, I think uh-huh. that we farm people out to counseling way more often than we should, and it's it's uh-huh. it, it there's such an implication of shame, even though you know Matt's therapist, like we're talking to one uh, that is surrounds that, but just the very act of it essentially says you're too much for us here but for what you're arguing for is no we need to create these safe spaces of vulnerability and pursue and we need leaders who are willing to essentially go first and to facilitate and to say okay this is the parameters of safety here and to make sure that that happens but then two, to facilitate essentially storytelling in the church Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. exactly right Mm -hmm. um i think that um you know we we say that uh All systems, all relational systems in the world, whether it's a school or a business or a psychotherapy practice or whatever, um, are based on the primary system, which is the family. Hmm. And families did not originate as an idea in a psychotherapy consultation room. Right. They originated (laughs) as an idea in the anthropology of, of Genesis, you know, one through four.
4: Hmm.
2: And as the church, I think there are things that we can learn from the world of interpersonal neurobiology and other elements of spiritual disciplines and so forth and so on that can enable us and can strengthen our capacity to train people in the same way that, uh, again, uh, not only do we as individuals have to grow in our awareness of how we live effectively in the world, But I mean, all of that is uh, a reflection of what we might call the biblical narratives theology of election,
4: Hmm.
2: right? There is this sense in which, in our modern world, where we want, where everything needs to be equal and nobody should have any special place, nobody should have a corner on truth, nobody should have any capacity for saying that this is right and this is wrong, because that would be a power play in our postmodern way of thinking about things. The biblical narrative suggests that, in fact, God does pick certain people and doesn't pick other people. Mm -hmm. God chose Abraham and not somebody else. God chooses Jacob and not Esau. God chooses Israel and not another nation, right? There is this sense in which the story of the gospel emerges and grows over the course of time and history in the same way that we as individuals emerge and grow over the course of our own history, but for the purpose, not for the purpose of self-serving, right? Abraham wasn't chosen for his own purposes. Jacob wasn't chosen for himself. Israel wasn't chosen for itself. We were chosen to be conduits for goodness and beauty and joy to the rest of the world. Mm. And so these groups, they, you know, we can't magically make them all happen at the same time. And not everybody is at the same capacity for doing uh, what everybody else can do. It's going to have to grow in its capacity. But for the purpose of being a conduit, of goodness and beauty and joy for the world, mm. and so this this gets to the heart of some of what we were talking about in the in, in the book. This notion that you know, frankly, I just wish I could be free of shame, just because I'm so sick of feeling it. It'd be nice right. if you could just like be rid of it, just for that, that for that reason alone. But I want to suggest that you know, again, evil's purpose in uh, what it does in Genesis three is not just about you know, trying to turn us into sinners, if its purpose is to devour everything about the creation, we must remember that we human beings were made to make things. We were created to live in God's image and as part of that, to create things as God creates things. And one of the primary things that shame does is that it disempowers us from being able to create from being able to be the artists and the workers and the teachers and the engineers and the physicians and the taxi drivers, all these and the parents that we were made to be, to make new things. That's what we were made to do and to steward them all
4: Hmm.
2: more than anything else. Shame truncates our capacity to imagine that we could create, let alone to set off and do that. The healing of shame is not just a way for us to no longer feel bad about ourselves. It is a way to recommission us to do the work of creating goodness and beauty that God has had for us before the foundation of the world. This whole notion of what Peter and Jesus experience on the beach in John 21, where Jesus is not just about making sure that Peter knows and all the other disciples know that, hey, we're good. He says to him, feed my sheep. He says to him, I know where you are in your mind about us. I know that shame that still lurks, that grief that's in your heart about what happened six weeks ago. I've got news for you. I want you to stop paying attention to that. Start paying attention to me because I have work for you to do. Hmm. Work of goodness and beauty and joy.
4: Hmm.
1: That's just a beautiful place for us to just stop, even though this will be continuous just for all of us. And I appreciate that just in thinking of a takeaway from this episode and from the last one is just to not shame yourself in your ongoing walk with shame. And so that it is a growth process. And then in creating these spaces of vulnerability and these groups of vulnerability to not just you know throw out all of the church because we've done it wrong and we don't ought to be real and blah 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 but okay let's pick some leaders and let's celebrate the growth and then let's do the good work that God has prepared for us long ago and and to continue to, to silence those voices and I like how you even phrased it like to put to death you know the works of the flesh let's put to death shame uh, and and keep on running the race so Kurt, just thank you again for pastoring us so well and for exhorting us Mm -hmm. and for just teaching and leading the way and um, doing this deep dive of our souls of hopefully less and less shame.
2: You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to be with you.
1: It's been a joy for us. Um, Our question of the week for next week, we're going to continue the shame conversation. We want to hear from you listeners. So we want to ask you, What do you do to combat shame in your life? Which again, is this feeling that the world and the enemy says is you are worth less. Is it self-talk, is it books, is it scripture, is it relationships? Let's, Let's get practical friends. Uh, And also, for those of you who like this podcast, would you mind just uh, rating us on iTunes or wherever you find this podcast? Five stars are great. And thank you for all of you who give us that and just perhaps why you like it. Um, And so we really appreciate that. And really, we read all of them and we read all of your notes and hopefully we respond as well. We try not to miss any. Um, we, We try and see you in your seeing of us. So just thank you so much for that. Um, so for all of you and for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, guys, we will see you next week.